If you have a Bible with you, open up to John chapter 12. John chapter 12, we're going to finish this, this uh, chapter this morning, Lord willing, here in the Gospel of John. If you are taking notes today, you see an outline there for you in the bulletin. The title of this morning's sermon is, The Word of God is the Final Judge. The Word of God is the Final Judge. John chapter 12, the apostle writes, starting in verse 44, And Jesus cried out and said, Whoever believes in me, believes not in me, but in him who sent me. And whoever sees me, or excuse me, and whoever sees me sees him who sent me. I have come into the world as light, so that whoever believes in me may not remain in darkness. If anyone hears my words and does not keep them, I do not judge him. For I did not come to judge the world, but to save the world. The one who rejects me does not receive my words, has a judge. The word that I have spoken will judge him on the last day. For I have not spoken on my own authority, but the Father who sent me has himself given me a commandment, what to say and what to speak. And I know that his commandment is eternal life. What I say, therefore, I say as the Father has told me. Father, we do pray that you would open our hearts and our minds to this portion of your holy word, and that you would show us how to revere the scripture, how to revere the Father the Son, and Holy Ghost, how that we would uh, be blessed today and enlightened today to greater uh, understanding of your word so that we can live for Christ and walk in your light. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, there's an old story about some tourists going through a museum in Europe. It was an art museum, and as these tourists were walking around, they were casually making some critical comments about some of the paintings that they disliked or did not understand. And some of the tourists smirked, while others laughed as they pointed at various features of the artwork. And finally, one of the attendants, unable to put up with their disrespectful and discourteous behavior any longer responded, the paintings in this museum are not on trial. Only the spectators are. And so it is with the Word of God. For 2,000 plus years, religious leaders and atheists, wealthy and poor, brilliant and ignorant, have critiqued God's Word. But in the final analysis, as John has so aptly said, it will judge us all. The Word of God is not on trial. We are. And we will be judged on whether we accept the Word of God or reject it. The Bible is not a fairy tale. The Bible is not a novel. The Bible is not a fictional work like the writings of Greek mythology. The Bible has more authority than any building code or state law. The Bible has more authority than the governor of California, the president of the United States, or the Supreme Court. Can I get an amen with that one? <laughs> it's more important to know the Bible and to interpret it correctly than it is the American Constitution. And on that last day, you will not stand before man. You will stand before God. And you will not stand before a jury of your peers you will stand before Almighty God, and you will have Jesus either functioning as your divine defense attorney, pleading your case before the Father, or he will condemn you to everlasting punishment. 
God has given us clear directions on how he will judge us. There is the rubric of his law, but there is also the glories of his grace. And no one is without excuse. All have experienced creation and have been given a conscience, which is designed to point us to the word of God and our need for Christ. And so in our text this morning, Jesus says this in verse 48, the one who rejects me and does not receive my words has a judge. The word that I have spoken will judge him on that last day. This morning, I want to prepare you for that last day. This morning, I want you to be ready when the master returns. The Bible says, therefore, stay awake, for you do not know when the master of the house will come, in the evening or at midnight or when the rooster crows or in the morning, lest he should come suddenly and find you asleep. This morning, I want you to be like the five virgins who were wise, who had plenty of oil and they trimmed their lamps so that they were ready at midnight when the call came, here is the bridegroom. Jesus said in Luke 21, 33 through 36, that heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. But watch yourselves, lest your hearts be weighed down with dissipation and drunkenness and the cares of this life. And that day come upon you suddenly like a trap. For it will come upon all who dwell on the face of the whole earth. But stay awake at all times, praying that you may have strength to escape these things that are going to take place and to stand before the Son of Man. The words of Christ will never pass away. The word of God will never pass away. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of God will stand forever. And so today we're going to see how true it is that the word of God is the final judge. The word of God has the final say. The word of God is the final authority. And what we see in verses 44 through 50 is a summary of some of the major themes that we've been looking at in the Gospel of John. And the Apostle John knows that we learn by repetition. And so he reiterates several of the truths that he's been writing about. And I want to highlight three of these themes for you in our three headings and to show you how it is that the word of God that has been spoken by Christ will judge you on the last day. You ready? Three summaries really here at the end of chapter 12 as Jesus is closing up his public ministry and going to start focusing on just the disciples in the upper room starting next week. So here's the three things he summarizes. Number one, whoever believes in the son must also believe in the father. Look at verses 44 and 45. Jesus cried out and said, Whoever believes in me, believes not in me, but in him who sent me. And whoever sees me, sees him who sent me. Now, this has certainly been a major theme of the Gospel of John, the idea that whoever believes in the Son must also believe in the Father. In fact, the overarching purpose of this Gospel is to show that Jesus is the Son of God. Remember the theme verse at the end of John 20, verse 31, but these things are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. And throughout the Gospel of John, we see Jesus as just that. He is the Christ. He is the Messiah. He is the anointed one. He is the Son of Man. He is the Son of God. 
He is divine. He's the second person of the Trinity with all of the attributes of the Godhead. In the very beginning of the gospel, it says that in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. In verse 14, the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. And so what we're seeing here is that to believe in Jesus is to believe in God. And so in verse 44, when Jesus is crying out, that particular word is not one of sadness or troubles, but rather this is Jesus making a powerful statement. This word, to cry out in this context, means to call out. It means to exclaim. It means to speak with a loud voice. And so obviously what Jesus is saying, he is saying with authority. This is not a whisper. This is not a suggestion. This is not a thought to be processed, but it is a truth to be proclaimed. And what Jesus says was this, whoever believes in me, believes not in me, but in him who sent me. Now what Jesus is saying is that if you believe in him, you don't believe in only him, but you also believe in the Father. Jesus is not teaching an exclusive faith in himself without the Father, but rather a comprehensive faith in him and in the Father. You can't believe in one without believing in the other. And if you believe anything, Jesus is saying it is because you already believe in the Father. And if you already believe in the Father, then you will believe in the one whom the Father has sent, which is his own Son. Now, this kind of reminds me of the parable of the vineyard owner. You remember this one where there was a vineyard owner who planted a vineyard and he put a fence around it and then he leased it to some tenants, tenants for a while while he went to a foreign country. And when the season of harvest came, this, this vineyard owner sent servant after servant to collect some of the fruit of the vineyard. But the wicked tenants beat some up and they killed others. And then finally, the vineyard owner sent his beloved son saying, finally, he will say to them, saying, they will respect my son. In this parable, God the Father is the vineyard owner. The prophets of the Old Testament and even John the Baptist are the servants who came to preach of Christ. But the Jews have rejected these messengers sent from God. And some of the prophets they beat and they persecuted and some they killed. And now it is as if God is saying and thinking, well, I'm going to send my son, and they will respect my son, and they will listen to my son. The son represents my authority and my presence, so they will have to respect him. You know, sometimes when we're preparing dinner, the end of a long day, Lisa might say to me, honey, dinner's about ready. Do you mind going to get the kids? And I might find a kid or two who's down in the kitchen with us and say, hey, can you go get your siblings? And so a couple of my kids might go upstairs and try to gather our whole family, which is a challenge. And they'll come back downstairs sometimes and say, well, they won't come if we tell them. And I'm like, no, no, no. Tell them dad said dinner's ready and they better get down here right now. Well, armed with this new information, when they go up, the kids come running downstairs because they know daddy means business, right? Because we're trying to train them that they would come whenever we send another kid to grab all of the kids, right? The idea is, is that we need to, uh, to be trained that there's someone coming in our place and in our stead. And so even if we were to send Zoe, which is our youngest, she's only six years old, as cute as can be, but we've told our kids, you have to obey Zoe if she's representing us. 
if Zoe's representing dad, then if you don't do what Zoe says, you're not doing what dad said, and that means we're going to the bedroom so I can help you remember <laughs> that when Zoe says come to dinner, you come to dinner right away. And so the idea here is obvious. We need to know that the father is sending his son, and the son has all the authority of the father. And whatever it is that the father says is what the son says, and that's how we are to see it and understand it and heed the wisdom of Christ. That Jesus is saying that if you believe in me, or if you see me, then you believe not only in me, but you also believe in the one who sent me. You see not only me, but you also see him who sent me. In fact, skip down to verses 49 and 50. We're going to go ahead and cover this right now because it's so similar. Verse 49, for I have not spoken of my own authority, but the Father who sent me has himself given me a commandment, what to say and what to speak, and I know that his commandment is eternal life. What I say, therefore, I say as the Father has told me. Jesus is saying here that he is not acting independently, but rather is an extension of God's authority. The Father has given all authority to the Son, and the words that the Father has given to the Son are unchangeable, and they are absolute, and the Word of God is infallible, and it is inerrant. And so Jesus says, basically, the Father gave me a commandment, and that commandment I give to you, and if you follow John throughout here and in the, first, the epistles of 1 John, uh, then you'll know that the commandment is to love one another. Uh, the idea is to really to love God. I, I would say this would even be equivocal of the greatest commandment. You remember somebody came to Jesus and said, what's the greatest of all the commandments? And he said, to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And the second is like it, to love your neighbor as yourself. Now, don't be confused here. Jesus is not saying the way to become a Christian is by keeping commandments. At the same time, he's saying the command is to love God with all that you are. And so if the commandment is to love God with all that you are, we've got to understand that this commandment is not to be done to our liking, but to be done in according to the instructions given in the Bible, which means this, to love God in that way means that you love what he loves and you hate what he hates. To love God is to repent of your son and to follow him. This is what our culture doesn't get. They're like, well, God's a God of love. And so why can't we just all love him and all get along and everything goes? Because everything doesn't go. In the Bible, to love him means you abandon yourself. You repent of all known sin, that there's a change in your life. To love God is to take up your cross and to follow Jesus. To love God is to love and obey his son and his word. To love your neighbor does not mean that you let them do whatever they want. To love your neighbor is to point them to Christ. To love your neighbor is to point them to God's word. To love your neighbor is to patiently and lovingly point out their sin and show them the joy of knowing Jesus. To love your neighbor is to show them forgiveness and grace and acceptance because of the cross. Now, this kind of love for God, demonstrated by loving him and loving others, is eternal life. The commandment of forsaking all and loving God, all of God and all of his son Jesus and all of his word is what salvation is all about. And it's not about keeping a commandment per se, but it's about loving God with all you are. Like you can't be a Christian if you don't love God with all you are. You don't go to heaven if you halfway love God. 
Now, the idea here is to show that you can't love God without the grace of God changing you and transforming you. And when the grace of God changes you and transforms you, then you begin to keep this commandment of loving him with all your heart and with all your mind and with all your strength. And the reason that Jesus says that whoever believes in him and whoever sees him believes in the Father and sees the Father is because Jesus is saying that he is equal with God. God's commandments is Jesus' commandments. God's word is, is Jesus' word. And the reason is because they're equal. In fact, let me show you. Here's the next part in your notes here. Let me just show you eight ways, and we'll just run through this in staccato fashion, but eight ways that Jesus is equal with God. The first one is this. Jesus makes himself equal with God. In John chapter 5, we read a little bit about how Jesus had healed an invalid by the pool at Bethesda, and he did it on the Sabbath. And this Sabbath was given by God, but it was distorted by the Jews as they added extra man-made laws to it. So when Jesus started tampering with the Jews' understanding of the Sabbath, they didn't like it because basically Jesus was making himself on par with God. And so here's what is written in John 5, 16 through 18. And this is why the Jews were persecuting Jesus because he was doing these things on the Sabbath. But when Jesus answered them, my father is working until now and I am working. This was why the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him because not only was he breaking the Sabbath, according to their understanding of the Sabbath, but he was even calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. So those were fighting words for the Pharisees when Jesus said, this is what we're doing on the Sabbath because I am Lord over the Sabbath and that made himself equal with God and they didn't like that. They didn't see him on equal par with God. Uh, another way that Jesus shows that he's on equal par with God is B in your outline. Jesus makes his teaching the same thing as the teaching of the Father. John 7, 16, so Jesus answered them, my teaching is not mine, but his who sent me. In other words, whatever Jesus teaches, all that he teaches didn't start or originate with him apart from the Father. Rather, his teaching comes from the Father. Third, Jesus makes himself equal with God in another way by teaching us that, that Jesus makes knowing him the same thing as knowing the Father. So if you know Jesus in that intimate way, then you know the Father. In this context, Jesus is arguing with the Pharisees at the John 18, 19 reference there. He's arguing with them about how they're saying that he's only bearing witness to himself and therefore his testimony is not true. But Jesus says it's the Father who bears witness about him and he makes the claim that knowing him is knowing the Father. John 8, 19, they said to him, therefore, where is your Father? Jesus said, you neither know me nor my Father. If you knew me, you would know my Father also. Again, Jesus is saying, because you don't know or recognize me, you don't know or recognize the Father. You know, sometimes we get confused thinking like, well, Jews know the Father. You know, if they're Jewish, they know the Father in heaven, they know Yahweh, they just don't know Jesus yet. And what Jesus is saying, they don't know the Father. If they knew the Father, they would know the Son. They have a caricature of the Father that is incorrect. It's not the same God because they describe that God differently because they don't believe that God's Son is Jesus Christ. Jesus says in John 14, 7, if you had known me, you would have also known the Father. From now on, you do know him and have seen him. Another way that Jesus shows us that he's equal with God is D in your outline. Jesus makes loving him 
the same thing as loving the Father. John 8, 48, Jesus said to them, if God were your Father, you would love me, for I came from God, and I am here. I came not of my own accord, but he sent me. And so if you love God, then you would love his Son. And if Yahweh really was their Father, then they would be loving Jesus, because Jesus didn't come on his own, but he was sent by the Father. 1 John 5.1, everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ has been born of God, and everyone who loves the Father loves whoever has been born of him. And so you can't say, I love God, but I don't follow the teaching of Jesus. If you love God, then you love the Son, and you will accept the Son, because the Father loves and accepts and even sent the Son. Next, Jesus makes receiving him the same thing as receiving the Father. John 13, 20, truly, truly, I say to you, whoever receives the one I send receives me, and whoever receives me receives the one who sent me. This statement is made from Jesus to his disciples at the Last Supper. Jesus is anticipating giving them the Great Commission and by sending out his true disciples as witnesses of the gospel. And he says, if they receive you, then they receive me. And if they receive me, they receive him who sent me. He says it this way in Matthew 10, 40, whoever receives you receives me, and whoever receives me receives him who sent me. Now listen, every parent knows that if you receive their child, you are receiving them. But if you reject their child, you are rejecting them. There is no better way to show your love for the parent than by receiving and loving their child child. Another way that we see Jesus making himself equal with God is that Jesus makes doing his works the same thing as doing the works of the Father. John 5, 19, Jesus said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, the Son can do nothing of his own accord, but only what he sees his Father doing. But whatever the Father does, that the Son does likewise. Jesus does what he does, not on his own accord, but according to what the Father is doing and what the Father calls the Son to do. He's following in his Father's works. And one of my favorite things about being a dad, again, is watching my kids try to imitate me or their mother. I remember the kids grabbing wet wipes, you know, and wiping down the counter or at their size on the floor, just rubbing the floor down. You're like, yeah, you go, boy. You keep cleaning like that as you get older. I like that. You keep going. And they'll be cleaning, you know, because that's what they see their mom doing. They, they imitate their mom. I've seen my children hug and rock their little baby dolls to sleep. I've seen them give them milk and then burp them. I've seen them discipline their kids. No, no, no. <laughs> I'm like, you get them, boy, you get them. It's like they imitate what they've seen their parents do. This is what Jesus is doing. Whatever work the father's doing, the son's also doing. Jesus is saying that all the works he's doing are the works of the father. It's John 10, 37 and 38. If I am not doing the works of my father, then do not believe me. But if I do do them, even though you do not believe me, believe the works that you may know and understand the father is in me and I am in the father. Jesus shows us that he's equal with God by teaching us this. That next blank says, Jesus makes seeing him the same thing as seeing the Father. 
John 10.30, Jesus said, I and the Father are one. John 12.45, and whoever sees me sees him who sent me. John 14.9, have I been with you so long and you still do not know me, Philip? Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? So if you have seen Jesus, you have seen the Father, right? That's what he's saying. It's Colossians 1.15. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. It's Colossians 2.9. For in him, the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily. It's Hebrews 1.3. He is the radiance of the glory of God, the exact imprint of his nature. And so finally, we see here that Jesus shows us that he's equal with the Father and that saying that Jesus makes speaking his words, the same thing as speaking the words of the Father. John 8, 26, I have much to say about you and much to judge, but he who sent me is true, and I declare to the world that I have what I have heard from him. John 8, 28, when you have lifted up the Son of Man, then you will know that I am he, and that what I do, nothing on my own authority, but speak just as the Father has taught me. John 8, 38, I speak of what I have seen with my father, John 14, 10, do, not believe that, uh, do you not believe that I am in the Father and the Father is in me? The words that I say to you, I do not speak on my own authority, but the Father who dwells in me does his works. So what we're seeing is that all eight of these things demonstrate to us that Jesus is equal with God. Jesus is Lord over the Sabbath. Jesus' teaching is the same as the teaching of the Father. Knowing Christ is the same thing as knowing God. No, loving Jesus is the same thing as loving God. Receiving Jesus is receiving God. Christ's works are the works of the Father. If you've seen Jesus, then you've seen the Father. When Jesus speaks, God is speaking. And so this is one of the key truths that he's summarizing for us here at the end of John chapter 12, that if you believe in Christ, you must also believe in the Father and vice versa. Now, let's move on to our second summary statement or theme here that I want to capture for you. Real simple. Number two, whoever believes in Jesus must walk in the light. Verse 46, Jesus said, I have come into this world as light so that whoever believes in me may not remain in darkness. Two truths I want to show you here, real plain and simple again. A, Jesus is the light. That's what he's saying. He's saying that throughout the Gospel of John, the fact that Jesus is the light is all over this book. In fact, let me remind you just of a couple of them. John 1 verse 4, in him was life, and that life was the light of men. John 1 5, the light shines in darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. John 1 9, the true light which gives light to everyone was coming into the world. John 8 12, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. John 9, verse 5, as long as I am in the world, I am the light of the world. So obviously, Jesus is the light. And when he says, I am the light, he is saying that he brings spiritual vitality. He's saying that he brings spiritual visibility. He's saying that he brings spiritual light. He shines in the darkness. He, he's not a reflection of the light. He is the light. Every time we see the moon hanging in the, in the night sky and it's lit up, you have to be reminded that's not the moon's light. That's reflecting the light of the sun. Not so with Jesus. When you see Jesus, he is light. 
He radiates light. He generates light. His character is light. He fully has the full attributes that the Father has, and so that's who he is. He is light. And if that's true, your next blank says, Jesus' followers do not remain in darkness. They do not remain in darkness. Remember, just a couple of verses earlier in John 12, 35, Jesus said to them, the light is among you for a little while longer. Walk while you have the light, lest darkness overtake you. The one who walks in the darkness does not know where he is going. Isn't that so true? You're out camping and you get up in the middle of the night and you're trying to find the zipper on the tent. I mean, we obviously have flashlights, but you know how dark it can get. You can be in your own house. Oftentimes I get up early before anyone in my family is up. And I used to try to be like really quiet, you know, just turn on all the lights and kind of sneak to the door. And then, you know, I'm kind of groppling for the door, reaching out. Now I just have this thing. And I'm just like, boop, flashlight. You know, I can walk around, grab my socks, grab whatever I need and head out without waking Lisa up because that's what light does for you, right? It shows you, you can see clearly. You don't have to wonder what's going on. And if you are not walking in the light of Jesus, then darkness will overtake you. And if you're not going forwards, then you are going backwards. And if you're not gaining ground, then you're losing ground. Jesus says it this way in Revelation 3.16 to the church of Laodicea. He says, because you are lukewarm and neither hot nor cold, I will spit you out of my mouth. So it's not like I'm in the twilight zone. All right, it's either light or darkness. That's what the Bible calls us to. And if you're looking to the light and following Jesus who is the light, then it is expected of you that you would walk in that light. Ephesians 5, 8, for at one time you were darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Walk as children of light. So let me ask you this morning, church, are you walking in the light? Are you walking in the light in your motives? Are you walking in the light in your heart? Are you walking in the light when you're all alone on the computer? Are you walking in the light at work when you're gathering around the water cooler or out for lunch? Are you walking in the light when you have to respond to that difficult situation that arose in your week? I mean, just think about it. You probably faced some trials this week, some difficulty. Were you light in that moment or were you adding to the darkness? Are you walking in the light in the way that you handle day-to-day family conversations? Christian families struggle having light in their conversations. Have you ever been in a moment in your home and you're like, oh my goodness, you have father arguing with mother and and child with their parents and the, the husband with the wife. And in that moment, it's like, it doesn't feel very light in here. We feel like we're a dark family that's just all fighting and at each other's throats about whatever's going on in the house. God forbid that we would have the light on, like turn the light on. Let Jesus control your speech. Let Jesus help you resolve those conflicts. I'm just talking about in day-to-day life, this can happen so easily. Are you walking in the light in the midst of your trial? Because if you say you're a Christian, then you need to be walking in the light, which means that you're practicing the truth. Otherwise, 1 John 1, 6 and 7, if we say we have fellowship with him, while we walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. But if we walk in the light, as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another. And the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. So let me ask you again, are you cozying up with the world or are you fellowshipping with the light? 
Are you more attracted to the things of the world or are you more attracted to the things of God? Have you been cleansed of your sin? Have you been washed? If so, then are you walking in the light? John eleven ten. but if anyone walks in the night, he stumbles because the light is not in him. We're also warned in 1 John 2, 11, but whoever hates his brother is in the darkness and walks in the darkness and does not know where he is going because the darkness has blinded his eyes. So again, are you walking in the light with those around you? Do you love those around you? Do you know how to tell whether or not you're really loving those around you? Well, are you serving them? Are you saying kind things to them and kind things about them? Do you go out of your way to greet them or encourage them or pray for them? If you are constantly arguing with others, then you are not loving them, but you are hating them. And if you are in constant conflict, that's not love, but that's hate. And it may be that you can't even see because the darkness has so blinded your eyes. You know, sometimes we need this check, right? It's like you've been, your family conversation, let me just go off on that for a moment, all right? So the family conversation's going down between husband and wife, and it's going down between the kids, and there's a whole lot of disrespect going on, and there's a whole lot of impatience going on and harshness going on, and then you forget, like, oh my goodness, we're getting out of control because then someone else comes into the situation, maybe a friend's over, maybe you have company over, or maybe there's another family member, and then all of a sudden they're like, do you guys always talk this way? Has that ever been asked of you? Do you, guys, do you guys always interact like this? And all of a sudden it's showing like, you know what, that's not healthy. We, we must be really struggling. We become accustomed to this kind of tension in our home. And you may think that it's normal, but I'm here to tell you that as a Christian, it's not. You can have joy and peace and patience and love flowing through your home like a mighty rushing river. And parents, don't blame your teenagers. You start modeling it. You gently approach them when they are showing disrespect because it needs to be addressed, but do it in a respectful way, in a loving way, in a patient way. Yes, in a firm way and in a very clear way from Scripture. But these things going on in our homes, it's just kind of driving me crazy lately because we're struggling with this in our house, right? We're struggling. Yeah, your pastor struggles too, right? Hey, kids, get down here for dinner. You know, that's, why do you think I send Zoe up there? So, you know. <laughs> but we need God's help and we need his light and we need his patience. And that's part of what we're looking at here is that if we've seen the light of Christ, then we need to act on that light and live out that light and walk in that light. Let me move on. Number three, whoever believes in Christ must keep his word or be judged. Whoever believes in Christ must keep his word or be judged. Look at verses 47 and 48. If anyone hears my words and does not keep them, I do not judge him. For I did not come to judge the world, but to save the world. The one who rejects me and does not receive my words has a judge. The word that I have spoken will judge him on that last day. All right, let's look at a couple of these subpoints here. Jesus did not come to judge the world, but to save the world. He did not come to judge the world, but to save the world. 
the primary intention of Jesus coming into the world was not to judge the world, but to save the world through his sacrifice on the cross. Jesus' primary intention was not to bring death, but to bring life. Jesus' primary goal was to show the love of God. And so when we think of Jesus, we should think of him more as a dispenser of grace, not as an unforgiving judge. John 3, 17, for God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. And yet, there is a constant reminder through scripture that the free grace of God changes us and compels us to obedience. If the grace of God does not change you and compel you to obedience, then it is no different than you consuming the icing of a thousand cupcakes that give you a sugar high and then leaves you in a coma. Right? The idea is you can't just take all the lovey-dovey things of God like our culture does. God loves everybody. I just want to hear that one message, but I don't want to hear that love transforms, that love changes a person, and love expects me to walk in obedience with God and his word. Grace transforms. Grace is not a blanket that covers your sins and allows you to stay in your sin. Grace removes your sin and changes your heart to the point of where you don't want to continue in your sin. Grace forgives you and frees you in defining your joy in obedience to God's word. And so with the grace that God extends to those who repent and believe, comes a calling to walk in obedience, which is why Jesus says in John 15, 10, if you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. I mean, it's always been all about grace, but it's also always been about obeying God's word as well. Keeping God's word is abiding in his love. And if you are not a keeper of his commandments, then you are not abiding in his grace. Just as Jesus obeys the Father's commands and abides in his love, so should we in his strength and in his power. And if we don't obey God's word, then we do read about how Jesus does function as a judge. So your next blank says Jesus does judge in accordance with his Father's will. He does judge in accordance with his Father's will. So which one is it? Did he come to save the world or did he come to judge the world? Because he does both. Turn with me, if you will, so you can see it maybe more extensively in John 5, 22 and following, that Christ from his own lips explains it this way, for the Father judges no one, but has given all judgment to the Son. So we understand the Son is called to judge. Verse 23, that all may honor the Son just as they honor the Father. Whoever does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent him. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever hears my word and believes in him who sent me has eternal life. He does not come into judgment, but has been passed from death to life. Truly, truly, I say to you, an hour is coming and is now here when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God and those who hear will live. For as the Father has life in himself, so he has granted the Son also to have life in himself, and he has given him authority to execute judgment because he is the Son of Man. Do not marvel at this, for an hour is coming 
when those who are in the tombs will hear his voice and come out, and those who have done good to a resurrection of life, and those who have done evil to the resurrection of judgment. I can do nothing on my own. As I hear, I judge, and my judgment is just, because I seek not my own will, but the will of him who sent me. So how does this passage from John chapter 5 about Jesus judging with a just judgment fit in with the John 12 passage and the John 3:17 passage, both which say Jesus didn't come to condemn the world, but he came to save the world? Answer, the same message that proclaims life and forgiveness to the believer proclaims condemnation and death to the unbeliever. The same Jesus gives life to those who repent and believe, but he renders judgment upon the unrepentant. There are two sides of the same coin. The same gospel, two different results, either salvation or condemnation. Paul says it this way in 2 Corinthians 2, 15 and 16, for we are the aroma of Christ to God among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing. To one, a fragrance from death to death, to the other, a fragrance from life to life. So while Jesus didn't come primarily to judge the world, by the way, keep in mind at his first advent, he didn't come as judge. He came as a giver of life. It's at his second advent that he comes more as judge. So there's also a timing thing going on, but there's also the categorical idea of he comes to save and he comes to judge. He does judge the unbelievers who reject him. Those who are being saved are the aroma of Christ, a fragrance from his life to your eternal life, while those who are perishing are the fragrance of death to death from their sin to eternal punishment. And how does he judge them? The last blank here, Jesus judges according to obeying or disobeying the word of the Son and of the Father. Again, look at verse 48. The one who rejects me does not receive my words, has a judge. The word that I have spoken will judge him on the last day. So the one who rejects Jesus will be judged by Jesus, and he will be judged according to the words that Jesus has already spoken. It's John 3.36. Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. So the Son judges. The Father pours out his wrath. And all this is done in accordance with the Word of God, which stands forever. Jesus said in John 8, 15, and 16, you judge according to the flesh, I judge no one. Yet even if I do judge, my judgment is true, for it is not I alone who judge, but I and the Father who sent me. So here's what we're saying. The Father is judge. The Son is judge. The Father and the Son have given us the word which is our authority and our judge. And that's why we read in Hebrews 4.12, for the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and spirit, of joints and marrow, discerning the thoughts and the intentions of the heart. 
Listen to me. You don't always have God the Father or God the Son available in physical form. Obviously, God the Father is spirit. God the Son is flesh, but he's not with us here in flesh and blood. So the Father and the Son gave us his word. And the word recorded in the Bible is to be our authority. And so these passages are saying that there is nothing with more authority than the word of God. There is nothing with more clarity than the word of God. There is nothing that cuts cleaner than the word of God. When you're debating about an issue, you better bring chapter and verse, or it can get muddy real quick. So when you say, this is right, this is wrong, let the word of God do your talking for you. There is nothing sharper than the word of God. And so we must look to the word of God as the supreme authority to delineate between right and wrong. It's like Jesus is saying here in John 12, I don't have to judge you because my word will. You have a judge and it is the word that I have spoken. And the significance of understanding this is that the Bible is God's final authority. Pastors don't judge, elders don't judge, churches don't judge, Christians don't judge, the Word of God judges. And our job as pastors and elders and churches and Christians is to help people understand and determine the meaning of Scripture and how it applies to the truth of every situation in your life. That means we are to call sin what the Bible calls sin. That means we are to confront what the Bible confronts. That means we are to call out what the Bible calls out. That means we are to counsel like the Bible tells us to counsel. And that also means that we're to do it all in love, and in patience, and in kindness, and with understanding, and to give grace what the Bible gives grace to. The Word of God is not on trial today. People are, and we're on trial for how we understand the Word, and how we use the Word. The culture is under scrutiny for its adherence to the Word, or its mockery of the Word. The Bible is not to be juggled, jostled, or judged. Rather, the word of God is the final judge. So how about you this morning? Do you believe in Jesus? Do you believe in the Father who sent him? Are you willing to come under authority of his word? Have you come into the light or are you still in the darkness? Because if you don't know Christ, I call you this day to come out of darkness and to come into light. If you don't know Christ, I'm just inviting you to look to Jesus, who's the author and the perfecter of your faith. If you're here today and you're playing church, open the word of God and see the seriousness of either being with him or being against him. Jesus offers a covenant of grace through the gospel for all who will repent and believe. Cross over from death to life. Come out of darkness and come into the light of Christ. Call out to him this day, and he will by no means cast you out. If you're here, and you're going to be judged one day, come to Christ. Experience his mercy and his grace and the joys of knowing him and knowing that your eternal future is secure with him. If you, if you are a believer today, then you need to take seriously the authority of the word of God. You need to read it every day. You need to meditate on it every hour. You need to live every part of your life in accordance with its truth. May the word of God be precious to you. 
May it be your life manual. May it give you hope and encouragement and peace. The word of God is our final judge. It's a friend to us, but it also has authority over us. I love Psalm 25, 14. It says, the friendship of the Lord is for those who fear him. And I love that. It's the idea is like we want to be friends with God through Christ, but we must fear God and respect him and his word. And he makes known to them his covenant. So he makes known to us his word and his promises and because these words are true, they're alive, they cut, but they also heal as they point you to Jesus Christ because the word of God is the final judge. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for the opportunity to dig in your word today and to see the truths here about Jesus being one with the Father, about Jesus teaching us that if we've seen him, we've seen the Father. If we heed his teaching, then we heed God's teaching. If we see Christ's works, we understand those to be the works of the Father. Help us to never try to separate the two as if somehow there's an Old Testament God who judges and the New Testament Son of God, Jesus, who shows grace. We know that it's a double-edged sword. The Word of God cuts. It brings about judgment, and it also shows us mercy and grace at the cross of the Lord Jesus Christ. And the only way we even know about this is because of the Word of God. It is our authority it is an extension of your character. It is holy and without failure. And so today, God, I pray that we would read the words of God, being a letter from you to us, that we would read the words of Christ and that you would enlighten our hearts and our minds to the power of the Holy Spirit, that we might have life and joy and peace, which comes through the Lord Jesus Christ. And so I pray, God, that we would humbly come before you this day. And as we read your word this week, we would realize the importance that it plays in our lives. And it's in Jesus' name we pray.